it is incumbent upon the believer to understand the assumptions and the reasoning behind our faith and to carry that out again to its logical ends. And I would argue that for everybody, regardless of the belief system that we subscribe to, whether it's Judeo-Christian or Buddhist or secular and so on, to really evaluate our claims, follow them out along the natural reasoning all the way to its end and see if it squares with reality. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ideology. Mick Murray here, flying solo today. Drew is out this week, and so I am holding down the fort in his absence. And I want to do a second week at a look at Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, go back and uh, take a listen to that episode. Uh, we looked at Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, began an analysis of that book last week and her take on the application of personhood theory in modern society. And last week we looked at the kind of uh, secular dichotomy or secular dualism between what Francis Schaeffer called the upstairs and the downstairs models of truth, the, the two-story concept of truth, where we have the more subjective, postmodern, values-based part of our lives in the upstairs, and the more concrete, objective, facts-based part of our lives in the downstairs, and how, for most of us, that manifests in having a kind of a sacred-secular divide where our Private lives are the are the realm of our spirituality and our beliefs, and then our public lives are the realms of our work and contribution to society. We can be kind of lulled into divorcing our spirituality from the rest of our lives. But for broader society, this has taken deep root, and uh, even the, the premise of her title, Love Thy Body, is exploring how modern secular society really demeans the physical body, where there may have been some rhetoric in recent years around various movements, um, uh, secular movements that critique the Christian faith for being anti-body, but she says actually the opposite is true, and and we explored uh, some reasons as to why that is in last week's episode. We talked about how there are deep roots uh, in both Christian traditions and secular traditions that go back all the way to the Gnostics, the the Gnostic heresies that the early church was consistently combating, that saw the material world, the physical body, as the locus of evil, uh, whereas the the Christian narrative is actually uh, has a has a very high view of the body. It's uh, it's an embodied spirituality, the incarnational theme that runs throughout the scriptures of God creating the physical earth and declaring that it's good. That He created Adam and Eve in a physical body to display His glory, made in His image. Though God doesn't have a physical body, God the Father, that is Jesus, of course, later incarnated, taken. Uh, God taking on flesh, having a physical body, but the the physical earth having a high telos, a high moral purpose. The, the God's ethics are not divorced from his physical creation. And then, of course, that culminating in the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming flesh and not being liberated from his flesh at death, but resurrecting in the flesh, ascending in the flesh, and we'll 
one day return in the body, an embodied existence, and how today there is a call to Christians to have a high view of the body, to have an integrated understanding of what it means to be human, that we are, yes, spirit, that there is a spiritual component to who we are, a soulish component to who we are, but a physical embodied reality to who we are as well that is as important as the immaterial part of who we are. And we explored how this fleshes out in, say, abortion last week, and mainly simply because that was the first chapter that Nancy Piercy writes about to articulate, to illustrate this this dualism that she sees in secular ideology that demeans the body, that creates this distinction between what it means to be a human person and what it means to be a human being, and how the physical component of a human being has been subjected to the more psychological experience of what it means to be a human person and how this plays out in in abortion, for instance, is that the collection of cells is very much agreed upon now it's a human being in utero, but it doesn't necessarily yet have the qualifications or the distinctions or the characteristics of becoming a of, of being a human person until it can be self-reflective or experience pain and these various other highly subjective values-based qualifications that are overlaid on top of the conversation to determine whether or not something is indeed a person. And this has deep roots in atheistic secular ideology, where if there is not a creator who endows people with unalienable rights, if we are, again, just a cosmic accident here as a product of time, chance, and chemistry, then there is no high moral meaning or tell us for the human existence, it is what we make it to be. If there is no will of God determining the goodness of a human life, then we simply impose ours. and becomes, in many senses, reductionistic or pragmatic and becomes increasingly so in various manifestations of modern society. Uh, Drew teamed me up at the end of the last episode, trying to bring it home a little bit more maybe to a, a reality that is that is more common to the majority of believers. And so we looked at sexual ethics and how this dualism where there's a, a low value placed on the physical body, how this may have crept into even uh, Christian thinking where we can tend to perhaps not have as high a moral standard as we have in the past when it comes to our sexual ethic. Uh, but this plays out in a lot of different ways as well that touch our daily lives. That's what I want to explore here briefly today in this second and last installment of a review on Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body. In chapter six of Piercy's book, she talks about transgenderism. And though I would imagine the majority of our listeners are not currently experiencing gender dysphoria, what I have observed is that the thinking behind gender fluidity and all the conversations around transgenderism today are affecting how average uh, Christians, and especially our youth, our teenagers, how they are looking at the scriptures when the reality around them, the conversations around them, what has become mainstream is so counter and contrary to what they see in the scriptures. And it is, it's causing a real divide or causing them to really bring into question the veracity of the scriptures when they stand in, st- in such stark contrast, or at least how it's portrayed uh, in various settings, standing in stark contrast to the 
quote unquote truths that are being presented to them about what it means to be a human person and conversations surrounding gender more specifically. So Piercy talks about how sexual orientation and gender identity laws, the I don't know if the acronym there is pronounced SOGI or SOGI, uh, but SOGI laws are based on the assumption that someone can be born in the wrong body. Again, that the psychological sense of somebody's gender is more constitutive of their human identity than their biological sex. Again, it, it's a prioritization of the psychological over the biological or the physical. You see this in a Fourth Circuit Court ruling from some years back around uh, bathroom usage, and the decision was written this way. There was an, uh, an individual with the initials GG, and the judge writes, quote, GG's so-called biological sex, in sneer quotes, is female, but GG's gender identity is male and can therefore use the boy's bathroom. And I think it's telling that the sneer quotes are put around biological sex as though that is something that is trumped up by modern society and elevating her gender identity, her internal sense of being male over and against her biological sex of being born female. And consistently, the, the trans narrative completely dissociates biological sex from gender identity. Uh, Glenn Stanton, who's a family researcher, says it this way, gender identity does not exist in any objective or quantifiable sense. There is simply no psychological, legal, medical, or physical appearance criteria that a transgender person must meet to be properly distinguished as such. That reality exists solely in the mind of the individual making the claim. And he is writing in favor of elevating the internal sense of gender identity over and against biological male or female-ness. And this is very postmodern. Actually, one of the goals of the trans movement is to eliminate the, quote, heterobinary structuring of the world, end quote. Piercy uses the term pomosexual, meaning postmodern sexuality, where there are an infinite number of possible genders. I don't know what the recent count is, but I know Facebook, uh, maybe a year or two ago, expanded their possible genders to be self-identified as to at least 30. I think it's more than that now. But the question has shifted from who am I to who am I right now, that the notion of gender is purely psychological. It's not tied in any meaningful sense to a biological reality, and therefore the number of possible associations for how I see myself is limitless and can shift on a daily, hourly, even minute-by-minute -minute basis. The Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States, S-E-I-C-U-S, uh, sets the sex education curriculum, and right now it states, quote, gender identity refers to a person's internal sense of being male, female, or a combination of these. People's understanding of their gender identity may change over the course of their lifetimes, end quote. So that raises the question, if gender identity isn't based on biology, what is it based on? And to that question, no one seems to have a definitive answer. And this is where we intersect with the underlying philosophy that's very postmodern. Nietzsche wrote, quote, everything has evolved. There are no eternal facts as there are no absolute truths, end quote. And Sartre writes, he's the, the famous uh, existentialist, French existentialist. He says, there is no human nature because there is no God to have a conception of it. That is, there's nothing objective. Man is nothing else but that which he makes of himself. 
end quote. And there are so many others who uh, say more or less the same thing, where they are elevating this subjective upstairs uh, sense of gender identity over and against the downstairs objective biological reality of being male or female. So and if you have tracked with our podcast for any length of time, you think back to our review of Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which I mentioned again last week. But part of the mission of this movement is to overthrow uh, heteronormativity or heterosexual normativity. And that's transmitted primarily through the family, religion, these institutions that have passed down this thinking that is rooted in natural law and the Judeo-Christian ethic for many millennia now. And it is trying to overthrow that for an ideology that is rooted more in a Darwinian understanding of human anthropology, of what it means to be human. Again, that there is no high moral telos for what it means to be male or female, and as we'll find here in a moment, even what it means to be human. Therefore, there is no unified self. We have no access to what the body really is, only what culture thinks it is. There's nothing objective outside of the self determining what a self actually is or what a human actually is. And so we have only interpretations of what it means to be human, no facts, and that is distinctly postmodern in its essence. So where does this intersect with our lived reality? And I think, again, as I look at from a pastoral standpoint, what's happening uh, here in the church, and I was just having a conversation with a couple of our pastors who work with youth uh, the other day, you have a very distinct set of underlying assumptions about what it means to be human that permeate now the major institutions of our society. And among those, most relevantly when it comes to our students, the media and in their case, social media, and our academic institutions. And the predominant viewpoint in both of those instances is that, again, humans are simply here as the product of time, chance, and chemistry. There is nothing distinctly special or unique about being human other than the fact that we have evolved to a much higher form of cognition than the other primates and other life forms on this planet. But there is nothing objectively special about being human. And so in that case, outside of biological reproduction, which it starts to sound like some of our reflections on Marx in the past and and even into the 20th century with some of the modern feminist movements, how technology is is understood to be a force that lowers the barriers between what it means to be male and female. And now as we're able even to moderate our hormones or change our sex in some measure through surgical means, even some of the natural sexual distinctions between male and female are able to be blurred more than they have in the past through medical intervention. Now, beyond that, there's nothing distinctly male or female about us. And there's a lot of debate about this, even in the medical world. And a lot of research has been done to ask the question, are there male brains or female brains? And, and what does it mean that genetically one is male or female? But for our purposes, Outside of some of the physical distinctions and childbearing distinctions, there is nothing unique about maleness or femaleness. And again, gender is only something that is contrived in the mind. Now, ironically, most of our notions of gender are built on cultural stereotypes, even in the church. That's a conversation for another time. 
But within the world of transgenderism, often the experience of transitioning from one gender to another is still based on some sort of cultural stereotype, which is ironic on several levels. But I digress. For our kids in the schools today, the underlying philosophies that are driving the narrative, to me, are what are more important to evaluate and potentially damaging in a in, in the sense of being malformed, but also the power to be redeemed in the sense of Christ-like formation. And if we can articulate for ourselves and then for our children the differences between the secular narratives that underlie modern assumptions about what it means to be human and the Judeo-Christian teachings around what it means to be human, we can start to tease out for ourselves and for our kids the, the differences between these two sets of beliefs, these two assumptions about humanity, and how that manifests in some of the different conversations that are happening today, which again, within the Judeo-Christian frame, we are created in the image of God that's a unified person that has a sexed embodiment, which even our biological sex glorifies God in some measure. We don't have time today to break down exactly why that is, but we see that God created them male and female, and maybe we'll have a conversation at some point about intersex, those rare uh, genetic occasions where there is some ambiguity between the biological sex of an individual. But in the vast majority of individuals whose sexed reality, whose sexed biology is unambiguous, that turns out to be a good thing that God, when he stood back after six days of creation and pronounced it is very good that even our sex embodiment is a part of the moral telos of what it means to be human. It has uh, an impact, a bearing on my discipleship to Jesus, how I think about that, how I steward my body. And this then is connected to a host of other ologies, and we've talked in this podcast before about how all of our other ologies flow downstream from our theology, and maybe more specifically our etiology, which is the study of causation. And, and if we are caused by an intelligent mind, a creative being who has an objective purpose for mankind, then that will determine our teleology, the meaning of life, what it means to live a good life, the purpose, the high purpose of being human. It's going to impact our morality, our ethics. It's going to impact our anthropology, what it means to be human, our sexuality, and so on. And likewise, on the other end of the spectrum, a secular ideology that is born out of Darwinian thinking, or at least the implications of some of Darwin's observations, natural selection leading to the diversification of species, for instance, that we are here at the end of a long and blindly guided process of random chance, that there is nothing metaphysical about us, that our ontology, the way that we know something, is simply through observation because there is nothing outside of the physical realm that needs to be revealed to us. And so our sexuality is merely an offshoot of our anthropology. It is purely pragmatic as the means to the propagation of our species, and more commonly recently, it is the means for physical pleasure, which is one of the high ends of the human existence. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now, you have that undercurrent underneath the conversations about transgenderism and gender dysphoria, and the back door, it seems, into the thinking of many of our 
not just teenagers and young adults today, but I would argue even the uh, adult Christians among us, this erosion that's happening uh, at the level of anthropology that's working its way back upstream, even at conversations around causation and where we came from and what it all means. Our teleology, our ontology, our epistemology are being tied now to these modern assumptions about what it means to be human. This dualism that separates out our psychological experience from our physical experience. And I know we talked about abortion last week, and, and that topic doesn't touch most of our lives in a meaningful way outside of, of political discourse. And today, looking at transgenderism, which again, doesn't touch most of our lives in a meaningful way in the sense that we personally experience gender dysphoria, though I would think that there probably are an increasing number of people who do experience that. But what's happening under the surface, the undercurrent of these conversations, that there's, again, an erosion of other ideas, other parts of our belief system that have a cascading effect. And more and more 18 and 22 and 25 and 33-year-olds are coming into my office and other pastors' offices and professors' offices and talking to their parents in the cases where they are actually proactive enough to have a conversation or to voice these doubts. But they are expressing that how can the rest of the biblical narrative be true if this one part, this central part of how we think about what it means to be a human person, and really, by extension, what a lot of people are talking about is how do we treat people, and that's, again, a whole set of conversations that uh, we probably should have at some point, how the church engages these dialogues around things like abortion and transgenderism. Yes, standing for truth, but understanding the nuance and the complexity and the pastoral sensitivity to talk about these ideas with great compassion, because they're not just ideas, these are people, ultimately. So there is the science of logic and reason, but there is the art form as well, and I don't know that we've always done ourselves a great service in the way that we have addressed these conversations in the broader public. That being said, it is incumbent upon the believer to understand the, the assumptions and the reasoning behind our faith and to carry that out again to its logical ends. And I would argue that for everybody, regardless of the belief system that we subscribe to, whether it's Judeo-Christian or Buddhist or secular and so on, to really evaluate our claims, follow them out along the natural reasoning all the way to its end and see if it squares with reality. In logic, this is the correspondence theory. Does this idea correspond to reality, correspond to what we observe in the world around us? And I would argue, actually, that the Bible is the text that has the intellectual integrity to explain what we actually see in the world around us. But not just the scriptures, but then all the branches of learning that have their root in the underlying assumptions that are laid out for us in the Bible. So again, I find works like Carl Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and in these couple of episodes, Nancy Piercy's Love Thy Body, I think these are important explorations of these modern phenomena. They're doing the, the work of the deeper thinking and exploration 
that uh, a lot of us don't take the time to do. And so I'd highly recommend picking up one of these books, whether you are personally wrestling with some of these questions or you have people in your life uh, who are, or you just want to be prepared for some of the conversations that are coming in the future. I so appreciate the works of people like uh, Piercy and Truman and so many others who are evaluating these uh, these conversations at a deep academic level, but also at a, at a pastoral and lived reality level as well. So recommend uh, picking up her book if you haven't done so already. And as always, thank you for tuning in to this podcast. We so appreciate your ongoing listenership, your participation. Please continue to send in your thoughts, questions, ideas to ideologypc at gmail.com. And we will catch you next week on Ideology.